All right. Well, good morning. Let me pray for us. Um, God, we are grateful for the day, thankful for your mercies, thankful that you um, have not treated us according to what we deserve. Um, we know we would deserve nothing but judgment, but you've been merciful to us. You've been gracious, even not, not only withholding wrath, but in graciously granting us all things uh, for true life in Christ. We uh, pray that we would delight in these realities, that we would humbly receive your word this morning and honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Deuteronomy 19, and we're planning to get through 21 today. We're going through a section where we're going to pick up the pace a little bit is the plan. Uh, we're going to be hitting a lot of specific laws. Um, so in, in Leviticus, or sorry, <laughs> Leviticus, Deuteronomy 19, verse 1. I'm just going to read this real quick and, and then remind us of the setting. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, and then dot, 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 it's going to give us some specific instructions. But where are the Israelites at this point? Where are they located? Are they in the promised land? No, they're not in the promised land. They're just outside of it, right? They're, uh, now, who promised them this land? God did, right? It even says twice there, the Lord your God is going to do this. The Lord your God cuts off the nations. The Lord your God is giving you this land, right? So God, the sovereign king, is giving his people this place where they will live under his good rule, right? And, and they are his people, and they, they must. it's good and right for them to obey him. In fact, if they're going to stay in the land and prosper in the land, in other words, live as kingdom citizens uh, in terms of receiving the blessings of that, well, there has to be the obedience of being one of God's people, right? It won't do just to say, well, I'm one of your people, God, and then live as though I'm not. That's, because that's just not reality. So that, that's really what's going on. They're outside the land. Moses, by, by God's grace, is giving them a series of sermons here. We're in the second sermon that we get in Deuteronomy. This is the longest one, that longest recorded uh, thing we have here because it covers chapters 5 through 26. And specifically, he's giving them covenant um, requirements, stipulations. This is what it looks like to live as God's people in the land. A lot of this stuff has been spoken of earlier. It, but what's the difference? The difference is they're about to enter the land and he's going to zoom in and give more specifics, okay? Because they, they need to know what is it going to look like to live in the land. So that's what they're doing. Chapters 5 through 11 in this section deals with the basic and greatest commandments. What's the greatest commandment? Yep, that's right. And so we see that clearly in the new covenant as well, right? Love God with everything, heart, soul, mind, strength. Um, second is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so those, those are really highlighted in chapters 5 through 11, as well as just an overview of the Ten Commandments, again, which is the core of the Mosaic Covenant. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. What we mean is just this covenant God specifically makes with Israel, right, when he's going to take them out of Egypt and they're going to live as his people in the land. Um, so the last section, I believe you guys are talking about leaders, right? Does that sound ring a bell? They needed some laws related to leaders, prophets, um, Kings, I think things like that. Is that ringing a bell? I was in the membership class, so I don't know, but you should have. That was what was in. Okay. All right. So we're going to pick up um, kind of where, where that w was in this sense that if you look back at chapter 16, verse 20, this is kind of somewhat of the theme of, of what the section we're in right now in this second sermon. 
um, Deuteronomy 16.20, Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So they need to be able to live in it and inherit it, and they have to be just. They have to live with justice if they're going to do that. Um, so that's why it's important, because they have to live in God's place. Um, what, what is justice? What do we mean by justice? What are some thoughts that come into mind when you think of the word justice? What was that? Justice. Okay, the justice system maybe comes into mind. Yep, and we're going to deal maybe even a little bit with that today in some of these laws. What else? Fairness. Fairness, yep, yep. Could, could carry that idea for sure. Righteousness? Yeah, righteousness. And in fact, in, in biblical times, the, the word for justice and righteous are really essentially from the same root, right? To be righteous is also to be just, to do what is right. Um, I think that's, that's probably a core meaning of what we're talking about here. So in society, uh, when we're talking about this, well, really just in general, what does justice mean for our relationship with God? Before we start talking about our relationship to other people. It means doing what is right according to God. And so part, another idea of justice is giving what is due to somebody, right? That, that, that's, that is what it means to do what is right, is to give them what their due is, right? It's different than mercy because mercy is what? Yeah, not giving them what is due them. You're, you're due punishment and we're going to lessen that or we're going to remove that or there's going to be mercy, right? Or grace. I'm going to gift you something you didn't deserve, okay? So... Um, so what do we owe to God? Yeah, wholehearted obedience. Wholehearted love and devotion. That's what we owe to God. So this is why, we've talked about this before, but any time we talk, want to talk about justice and injustice, the reason our world doesn't understand true justice is because if you don't start with what you owe to God, you're never going to ultimately arrive at what is just on a horizontal level. Now, but in God's common grace, we do have a lot of good laws that help us relate rightly to one another in spite of our failure to acknowledge God. But you will notice that most of the time you end up with those laws, it's because at some point, somewhere back, there was a fear of God initially, right? Um, that, that's how you're going to end up with something that's just. Um, so when it comes to giving what is due to a person, if, if they're an offender, there needs to be recompense, there needs to be correction, there needs to be punishment, perhaps, right? All those things would fit with what is just. So it's going to talk about that. Um, there also needs to be protections that would offer relief or just general protection from being misused or abused. That's true when it comes to justice too, right? So that's just kind of general things. It's not going to go, we're not going to get that definition completely spelled out here, but I want to have that in your mind because I think we are dealing with laws. We're dealing with ideas of justly, righteously living in the land, Right? And we are talking about Old Covenant Israel. We are not a theocracy. There is something different. That doesn't mean we should think, well, it doesn't matter if you have God or not, you'll still come up with good laws. That's not true. If you do not fear God, you will ultimately not come up with good laws. But what I mean is we are not the nation of God. Right? There is no, Israel was that nation under the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are coming into the kingdom. That's what we have happening. Okay, so these things are still connected, but I just want to make that clear. And my plan right now is if we get through all this this week and then next week move on to the next section, maybe we'll delve a little bit more at the beginning into how do we think about Old Covenant law. We've talked about that a couple times, but it's just helpful to get that straight in our mind. Um, okay, so that's where we're at. So you can see the outline there in front of you with the main um, Roman numerals. That's kind of what we're going to cover. So let's look first in chapter 19. We're going to talk about a couple criminal laws, I would say. Um, I think that's probably what unites these life, 
property and due process. Let's, um, okay, one more, one more word to define here. What do we mean by due process? That's actually not necessarily a biblical word, but what's the idea? Does anyone know? The right way of going about interjecting the law. Yes, yeah, so there's a process to it. There, there's a, a right way to do this to make sure that justice will be upheld rather than circumvented, right? Um, what, somebody else say something? Right. Yep. So there's got to be procedures for how you're going to determine right and wrong, and they've got to, and those have to be just in and of themselves. Um, so yeah. So we're going to see things like if you, you just one eyewitness. If that's the only evidence you have, you're going to have a problem really prosecuting somebody, right? Because why? Because we know people can misunderstand, misinterpret, and lie. So right. So we have to have certain certain things that are going to protect um, life, liberty, property, things like that. Justice can't just be a gut reaction. Um, it can't be an unjust use of even government authority. So that's some of the things we're going to see here. So let's look at um, the first thing is going to deal with manslaughter issues. Um, so chapter 19, verses 1 and following. We won't read this whole section. Uh, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession. Here's the reason, so that any manslayer can flee to them. Now, go ahead and read verse 4 here real quick as well. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there to that city may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hate, hated him in the past, and then he goes on and he's going to give an illustration, and we'll talk about that here in just a second. So we have these cities, and they're cities of refuge. Um, what exactly are these cities of refuge? Does anyone remember? Because we, we've seen these before. And you should get some idea from what we just read. But what are these cities of refuge? If you kill somebody, you can run there and escape the yeah. danger. So, so you can escape to this city if you kill somebody, right? Now, specifically, what we're talking about right here is, and the example he's going to give is, you're out in the woods, you're swinging an axe, the axe head comes flying off, hits your neighbor who's out there helping you, and he dies, right? It's just you and the neighbor out there, perhaps, People in the city find out about it, you're going to have a problem, right? Um, the Avenger, uh, and, and by the way, this Avenger of blood, it's not 100% clear what this is. It, it, it's kind of sort of like maybe someone who's responsible for prosecuting these type of crimes, but likely there was also a family connection. It probably was like, it's your job because they killed your relative to make sure justice is going to happen. Now, you can see why we need due process because the danger is what? If it's just, if, if it's you're the judge, jury, and executioner, you're going to have a problem, Right? Um, there needs to be some sort of process that we're going to sort this out, whether this was an accident or, as we'll see later, actual murder, right? Like you intentionally took this person's life, even though that was not warranted by the circumstances. And so there's got to be this way they're going to deal with this. So the manslayer has this place to flee so that basically they can have due process. This can get sorted out, right? Um, so this, this person would... Um, pursue them. And so the goal is what? The goal is ultimately to protect innocent life. Look at verses three and four again, so that the manslayer can flee to these cities. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. Look at verse 10. 
lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Shedding innocent blood would be a big deal. Whether that is a murderer murdering and then getting off the hook, or accidental death followed up by taking that manslaughter or person's life unjustly. Both of those could be shedding innocent blood. And, and, so, um, and so why is this so important? Because in God's land, they have to live under the God of life, which means life is taken seriously. That's part of what's going on here. This is not just a light thing. Um, blood unjustly shed would pollute the land. Because again, this is God's special place. There's something unique going on in Israel. But the principle still remains that life matters and must be, there must be justice to protect innocent life. So, um, we find that it is, um, they need, there needs to be a fair trial that needs to be offered. I think that's kind of what they're doing here. Um, also, it filled in in other places. We're not going to talk about this too much right now, but in other passages where it's talked about these cities, um, even in the case of manslaughter and an accident, there still had to be some level of atonement. And so, it seemed to be what would happen is, if you accidentally killed this person, it didn't necessarily mean that you would just go back to your city and live out your life in your city. You, you would typically have to live in the city of refuge until the high priest died. And when the high priest died, that was seen as making atonement for the innocent blood that was shed. Because even though you did it accidentally, the reality was innocent blood was shed. And it actually did happen because of something you did, even though it was not intentional. And so you should not be put to death for that. The point is life is important and atonement still needed to be made to cover innocent blood being shed, okay? I think you see that happening with these cities of refuge. That's not being covered right here. I think you see that in other places. But we recognize that all life being made, all human life made in the image of God matters. He deals with murder in chapter, uh, verses 11 through 13. But here's the alternative scenario. If anyone hates his neighbor, verse 11, and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. So you see, in both these cases, we're trying to deal rightly with the manslayer, either so that he may flee and live or so that he may be turned over to justice, right? Uh, Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. So they've got to purge this guilt, right? That's what they've got to do. Um, Quick word here, is valuing human life anti-capital punishment, at least under the old covenant? I would say it's true under the new covenant as well, but are we anti-death penalty? What's the difference if you're, let's say you're pro-life, right? Because especially a lot of our Catholic friends, I think, get confused on this. Um, I say, yeah, so what's the difference? Yeah, we have innocence and guilt, right? We have justice. In both cases, we're talking about what's just, which is preserving innocent life, right? The, the child in the womb to be killed would be injustice. There's no due process being applied for the life of this individual, right? Who is a human? And everybody, I mean, we know that. Biologists even know that who reject God. So we're talking about human life. In the case of capital punishment, rightly executed. Now, I understand there's a ton of caveats here about injustice and the way this gets. So I'm not, this is not just a wholesale, listen, don't ask any questions about, okay, fine. Christians can debate and talk about the details of this and work out what it should look. Yes, amen. But just in general, that's not wrong. In fact, that would be right 
And both because that is just, that is what is due. And we also see it, it purges guilt here for Israel. That, that was special meaning because they were in the land. But it also purges guilt because it deals with it in a way that stops other people, hopefully, from going that direction. And in a way that upholds the value of the innocent life that was taken. What's the only recompense for an image bearer of God? It's for this person to, to have given up their right to life, right? So we see, we see both those things going on here. Um, so I don't think these are inconsistent. Uh, I know that's a, that's a modern application, but I think it is a good application of some of these thoughts. They need to purge the guilt. That verse 13, that idea is repeated eight times in chapters 19 through 24. So this idea of purging guilt comes up over and over again in their legal system. This idea of removing it by the payment and justice that's executed and by removing it from the community. Um, because God is holy, Right? So Israel in the land has to live under the holy God. They have to purge it by removing it so it doesn't continue like a cancer on society. Um, it, they have to guard the community from being tempted to evils because it will spread. Um, and, and again, in a modern sense, we can see this in our system, can't we? Um, so what happens if you have, let's say, and the way our system works, you have a district attorney who says, listen, I'm not going to prosecute theft anymore. Unjust. That's unjust. And, and what now we, we could, again, we could debate over the punishments given out for theft in different vicinities. And so, okay, that's fine. But it would be unjust to say no punishment, even though you stole something, right? Um, and lots more people are going to steal things, right? So that's one aspect to purge the guilt. I do think it's bigger than that for Israel because, again, they're living in God's land. And, and under the holy God, the land needs to be holy and set apart. And, and so there's something unique theologically going on there, too. But it's also not less than you've got to stop it from spreading in society. And, and you're going to see that as we keep looking at this purge the guilt. That that's going to be given as explicit reason sometimes for why you've got to deal with this. Because it's going to spread if you don't deal with it. If you don't execute justice. Um, so we need to just recognize that. Um, same thing with, there was, I, I was just listening to World and Everything in it. They were talking about um, in New Orleans, carjackings have skyrocketed. Right, and they had a, a DA who ran on the platform of uh, "I'm not going to prosecute juveniles as adults." And what happened is you had a bunch of juveniles that kept committing carjackings, right? And so, in one of these situations, a woman, innocent woman, ends up essentially being dragged from the side of her car as they're fleeing, and gruesomely being killed through that. Now, thankfully, the DA said. I'm going back on my promise here and we're going to prosecute this guy as a adult. And that was probably the right move to do. I don't know all the details, but probably was the right move to do. But um, the point is we have to deal with these things. And, and to be fair, again, uh, this is not foundationally a government issue, is it? When we talk about juvenile crime and other things like that. I think that's part of the picture, but it starts in, with the authority in the home, right? Do we have parents who are modeling what it looks like to value the rights of other people? The fact that other people exist, right? It's not just you. Um, you know, do we have parents that are modeling that, that are disciplining and, and saying, look, there's something worse than a spanking, right? Um, you got to learn to go the right way. And so just trying to help, help kids realize that. So, um, you know, things like no-fault divorce, promiscuity, all these things, they, all these things contribute to our society. So I'm not trying to, all I'm trying to do is show you one parallel and how this can apply to us living under the new covenant. Okay, recognizing there's a bunch of details you have to work out in every culture, whether you live in, you know, China, America, South, you know, somewhere in South America, Argentina, or something like that. Um, 
we got to figure this out. But the point is, purging the evil is certainly still a relevant principle. Okay, um... Next is property theft. Anything, any questions or thoughts on that before we move on? This is, we're still under the criminal law section here. We're going to talk about property theft. We're going to move faster through this, these next sections, but thoughts or questions on any of that? Okay. Property theft, uh, Deuteronomy 19.14. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the, inherit, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Land is really important to them. Why is land really important to the Israelites? how they eat okay so just practically speaking if someone is stealing your land they are literally stealing your livelihood right so that that's one reason this is a big deal uh the other reason is god has promised it to them as an inheritance right so i'm gonna make a new covenant parallel here just think about what is our hope we have an inheritance in christ stored up in the heavens sealed by the spirit is our inheritance the land we live on no. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have right to property and all that stuff. I think we do. But I'm just trying to say, I'm just trying to help you see why this is more than just livelihood. It, it's not less than that. But there's also a sense in which um, their experience of the inheritance that God had for them was also the physical land God was giving them, wasn't it? This is why, have you ever thought of, have you ever read that story about Ahab? Is it Ahab and uh, Naboth? You read that and you, to us, it just seems like, well, this is just, a greedy, selfish king, right? Um, but you also kind of think, you know, why not just eminent domain and let that happen, right? Like, just roll with that. But he, he can't do that. What does he end up having to do? Killing off Naboth to get his property. Because eminent domain really wasn't going to work back then because what you were saying was, look, I'm, we're pushing you out of the inheritance of God, out, of, out into what utter darkness, essentially, and saying you have no part with the people of God. This is why it's such a big deal that Ahab takes Naboth's land. Murder is, the, is a big deal. But that was not the only major deal in what Ahab as king was doing. The major deal is he's essentially pushing him out of the land and he, you know, he, he's taking over his inheritance that God had given his family. So again, there's something that's, there are certain parallels that would be similar for us today, even though there are certain differences, right? I'm not, my land is not an expression of yeah, my inheritance in Christ. That doesn't mean that there, aren't, there isn't such a thing as property rights that should be observed in our country because we're going to have crazy lawlessness if that's the case, right? We will have the powerful oppressing the poor in all sorts of ways if we can't own our own land. Okay, but I want you to see the bigger picture there. So um, that's what's going on there. Let's move on to laws concerning witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So that's the first rule that's being laid down here. This is kind of a due process thing, but you need more than one witness. Look, if that's the only evidence you have, he's saying, you need more than just one eyewitness. And again, we talked about why that's an issue. I think intuitively we know why that's an issue. Uh, one thing we could say is God cares about um, truth right? Truth matters. Um, keep reading. Next issue, 
if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. If the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So we've seen that last part before. That's the idea that the punishment needs to fit the crime. That's really the point that's being made there. Um, you, don't, you don't need to be excessive above what the crime was, and you don't need to be below what should be required, right? Um, but malicious witnesses are a problem because why? Yeah, and, and you're, they're falsely accused. And, and what essentially, let's, let's say it's, they're accusing you of a capital crime. They're essentially trying to murder you using the legal system. So I think when you first read that, sometimes you're like, that seems a little severe. Why are you going to treat him the same? But the point is, I mean, he's after your, your life or your stuff, your livelihood. This is a very big deal. And so you can see one of the reasons when we talk about that purge the evil, we saw that again there. What's the point? One of the main things we're saying is others will see and realize, you know what? It's a pretty big deal to be a false witness, right? So another application, I encourage you to teach your children to not be false witnesses. Um, think about how many times your children may come to you, right? And say, so-and-so did this. And then come to find out what they mean is, I, my stuff is missing, and I think it's probably this brother over here. Right? You have to help them learn that's actually bearing false witness. That's what you're doing. Because the reality is you're testifying to something more than you know. Now, if you saw him take it, fine. You can say, I saw him take it. But don't say, I saw him take it if you did not see him take it. You just think he took it. You might just need to come and say, it's missing. I think he might have taken it. Of course, even that we could say, as parents, sometimes, you know, we, we don't need all your speculation here, right? Um, anyway. Okay, so um, laws concerning witnesses. Uh, this is a big deal. It's even in the Ten Commandments, right? Ninth Commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. Okay, any thoughts or questions on any of those criminal laws before we move on to laws about warfare? This uh, eye for eye, yeah. um, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, that's to be done to the witness. Yeah, that's right. Yes. If they wanted somebody to get 39 lashes, they get their lashes. That's right, yep, yep. I think that's, yep. We're talking about the witness who would be a false witness, right, who is, is maliciously after his neighbor receiving that punishment of, that would be equal to what he was hoping his neighbor would get, right? About the two, four, three witnesses, mm -hmm. I, I find it interesting that an or is given, and I yeah. wonder if that is allowing room for higher burdens of proof for more sure. serious crimes. Yeah, I think that's a, probably a good reading of that. I don't know for sure, but I think that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Good. Anything else? Yeah. What happens when there's a conflict between the witnesses? Is there a punishment for the person... Who's wrong in You're saying if you had two witnesses and... Yeah, you have two witnesses and one of them is wrong. What do they do to them? What is wrong? Is there punishment? Do they, if it's a capital crime, do they kill the person who's not... Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I think the idea is if you're a false witness... You know that's going to be punished, right? Now I don't I don't really know the specifics of how it got applied in every detail, right? 
In fact, I'm trying to think if we ever have an example in Scripture where we see this carried out. Can anyone think of an example? That doesn't mean it didn't get carried out. I'm just asking, did it? Okay, so trial of Jesus, that's right. Right, yep, yep. Yeah, so you definitely have false witnesses shown in Scripture. I'm trying to think if any of them ever get punished by the judicial system in Scripture, and I, I don't know if there's any specific examples of that. But anyway, you get the point. The point is it was there, right? And I'm not saying it probably did actually get carried out sometimes, but in terms of the specific, your specific question, I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's a specific example and I can't come up with one. All right, instructions related to warfare, chapter 20. Um, <clears throat> we're not going to read all this, but we'll, we'll zoom in on a couple things. Look at verses 1 through 4. The first thing is, when it comes to warfare, the men must trust God rather than fear. So again, we're talking about God's people, right? This is why this is included in their rules, because they're God's people. So when they go to war, they need to fear God more than man. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So notice that some of the reason to not be afraid is remember what God has done. I mean, Egypt is a superpower of the day. This is like one of the big countries, right? If they had one of those summits where the big countries got together, Egypt would have been at the table, right? They didn't, but if they did. Um, and when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Lord, uh, sorry, O Israel, today you, sorry, I'm losing my place here, you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For, here's the reason here, the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. So they shouldn't fear their enemies because they can trust God. God is with them. God has promised them this land. He's promised to be with them whenever they're even attacked by um, enemies around them as long as they are living as his people, right? That, that's kind of this, this whole vassal agreement, right? He's the king. They're the vassal servants. It's kind of this idea that like their responsibility is full wholehearted obedience and the king says, protection, you're my people. I'm going to treat you like my people. My resources are applied for your good, right? So that's why they have this, this hope here. Then he gives some exemptions from military service. We're not going to read all this, but um, here the three first ones he gives are these. Built, you built a new house and haven't dedicated it yet. You planted a vineyard and have not enjoyed its fruit, um, which by the way is more than a one-year process to plant a vineyard and get to enjoy its fruit in the old covenant. Um, betrothed a wife and has not taken her yet. So in other words, has not consummated the marriage, been married, all that stuff. Um, those first three remind us that the point of them going into the land and having warfare to take the land was that they might live as God's people, enjoying the blessings of being God's people, right? In other words, it wasn't just war for the sake of war, where we're just a brutish people and we like to fight all the time. That was not the point. So I thought this was a good uh, quote from a commentator. He says, the possession of the promised land, in other words, was at the heart of Israel's wars. And the importance of the land in the plan of God was that Israel was to live and work and prosper in it. The building of homes and orchards, the marrying of a wife and other such things were of the essence of life in the promised land. And if these things ceased, 
then the wars would become pointless. So you remember, I mean, be fruitful and multiply, right? I've given you everything in the garden, God said to Adam and Eve. In some sense, Israel is, is supposed to be reliving pieces of this as they go into the promised land. As God's people, in God's place, under God's rule with his presence among them. Right? Now, they're not going to live up to the standard. We see that. We know that. Um, it's really just ultimately pointing us ahead to Jesus. We need Jesus to come to give us access to the eternal promised land. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not still a future of this physical land for Israel. I think there is. Um, because God's going to fulfill all those things. But, it, but it, even though it's its own reality, it also points ahead to certain things. That's what I'm saying. It does both those things. Um, okay, so uh, the last exemption is being fearful. Why? Well, ultimately, one thing that's told here is it would be c- contagious. It would affect other people. Another thing is, I think it would imply that these individuals are not doing what verses 1 through 4 said. They're not really being obedient to the covenant and trusting the Lord because they're letting fear get the better of them rather than showing courage, which is when you feel afraid, you still trust God and do what he tells you to do, right? Okay, so now what they, they're told a few things about what they're to do when they go to war, and there's two different sets of instructions, uh, one for cities outside the land and one for cities inside the land. When I say, you know, when I say the land, I mean the land God promised them versus other areas outside of that, that God has not said, this is the land I'm giving you. Does that make sense? Okay. So cities outside the land, verses 10 through 15. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor and serve you. Um, But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And then it goes on and says, God will give you victory. You're to kill all the males. The women and little ones and livestock are to be um, kept alive. Um, and it says, thus you shall do, verse 15, to all the cities that are far from you. So notice it's saying the cities that are far from you, which are not cities of the nations here in this land, right? Um, so they are to... Um, offer terms of peace, make this kind of vassal agreement with these people um, if they are willing to surrender. If not, they are to have this warfare that's going to go on, including um, killing all the combatants. So um, that's what's supposed to happen outside the land. Inside the land, look at verses 16 through 18. But the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, uh, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. Um, so let, let's talk briefly about this idea of devoted to destruction. Um, God commands them to do this, so they're not just doing this because they came up with this idea on their own. Uh, and they are being used as an instrument of God to do what? To, yeah, to, to, to judge the inhabitants of the land. And so, um, so God is, is saving his people. He's also judging his enemies. Um, so let's talk real briefly. Does this sound harsh? Because to our modern ears, it does. Um, and we do have to remember, Israel is in a unique position. There is no Isra- there's no nation that's in this position today, right? Um, even modern Israel does not have this command. Just to be clear, they do have the they do have the right to defend their country. I'm not saying that. I think what what's going on now. I mean, I just 
you know, it's not that complicated in a lot of ways. Uh, but, I, but what I'm talking about is a nation that's a theocracy that's been told, you're going in, you're going to put all these people under the band, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it actually says that they would not teach them according to their abominations. Right. That, that's actually the stated reason. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I would say that is one of the, like, I think there's other reasons. I do think you're, I, but I, you're exactly right. In this passage, because why? Israel's about to go into the land, and God is saying, you have to live in faithful obedience to the covenant. That's, that's for your good, and that's the only way it's going to work. So why, why give that stated reason as the one reason he highlights here? Because they're about to go in the land. And they, if they don't follow through with this, they will be tempted. And what happens in Israel's history? They don't follow through with this. They are tempted. They do go after idols. And then what happens? God judges them through other wicked nations that he sends. So we have to recognize that this is not, so also to make it clear, this isn't uh, genocide in the sense that we're just after like one group of people because of their ethnicity. The issue here is these are the people in the land that God has promised to his people and they are wicked and vile and God's going to do the same thing even against Israel later when they act wickedly and vilely. This is a righteousness issue is what this is. Um, so a couple things here. Um, let's see. Uh, so God, God is the judge of all the earth. All sin deserves death. We need to recognize that. Um, anything less than that is mercy. And I would say this also prefigures judgment at the end of the tribulation period, Revelation 19. Um, we have to recognize God will judge all sin and he has authority to do that. Um, I think what, what's hard is here he's using Israel to do that. He's using a sinful people to judge another sinful people. But remember, he's going to do the same thing with ungodly Assyria and Babylon later on Israel for their sin. So God, God has the right to do these things. Um, second, God foretold and warned that, that warned that this would come hundreds of years earlier. Galatia, uh, sorry, Genesis 15, 16. He says that Israel shall come back here to this land in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the Amorites are one of the people groups there. It's a stand-in for that whole area. And what's the point? They are wicked, but God in his mercy is not going to immediately judge them. He's going to let the cup of wrath keep filling up and then it will overflow and be poured out. So there's warning that's given. There's time that's given and there's going to be zero repentance over this time period. Um, third, and this is, this is the main point given here that you just brought up, is if they are left, their wickedness would lead Israel astray. That is the explicit reason given here. And so Moses is countering that um, by warning them about it. Fourth, there is always an implied exception to the promises of total destruction and judgment. The exception is through repentance. Always. The reason we know that, what happens to Rahab? She ends up becoming part of Christ's line even. But my point is she's not destroyed. Because why? She sides with God and his people against the wickedness of the land. And she says, I'm with you. I'm not going to turn these spies in. God's giving you the victory, and I know that. I'm over here now, right? Um, think about Nineveh. When you read in the book of Jonah, when the prophet speaks, essentially what his message is, is uh, judgment is coming. I don't even, I have to go back and look at it. I don't even know that he really even calls them to repentance initially. I can't remember. But, but the way he talks, it just sounds like, listen, it doesn't matter what you do, judgment is coming. But what do the people do? By God's grace, they repent and so what does God do? He relents. He does not pour out his judgment. Um, Ephesians talks about how we were children of wrath. 
So what hung over us? The wrath of God. What's the, but that doesn't get poured out on us if we're in Christ because of repentance and being put into Christ. So you see the point here. These people, yes, they are all essentially deserve to be wiped out. And that really is what the call is. Their wickedness has reached the brim. God is just, he's not unjust in pouring out judgment on any sinner. So all those things are true. But I think that really does help to remember that, that when a people repents, God's judgment will relent. These people aren't doing that, right? And, and God knows that and that's what's going to happen. He's going to pour out his judgment, right? Um, okay. So... Um, one other thing I'll point out is spiritual warfare language in the New Covenant gets used to refer to things like our need to stand firm against Satan's schemes in a spiritual form of warfare and Jesus' triumph over all uh, demonic and even earthly powers at the cross. Uh, last warfare law right here is they are not allowed to just cut down trees indiscriminately. Um, that's important, right? Uh, it's not so much direct application to us uh, in, in one sense, but here, here's the point. The point is it would often happen that when, it, when you would go to siege a place, a lot of the pagan armies, what they would do is they would just lay waste to the land for several reasons. Number one, they needed supplies to build different things to help them, you know, attack the, the walls and stuff. Um, also, because it's kind of like, um, you know, incites fear in the people. It's kind of like, listen, even if you win, you're going to have no more apples forever or something, right? I mean, they're just like doing all this stuff. But remember, what, why is this unique to Israel? Because this, again, this is not just indiscriminate warfare. This is God has given you this land. This is the land of promise. It is flowing with milk and honey for your provisions. The goal is that you will enjoy life in God's garden-like place, right? So I think that's what's going on here. They're not to just destroy trees indiscriminately when they besiege a place. Um, Okay, any thoughts or questions on that? Section, warfare laws. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Unsolved murders are next. I don't know if anybody likes uh, one of those, you know, some of those shows that deal with unsolved murders, right? Um, verse uh, one. If the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess uh, sorry, hold on, sorry. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed them. So that's the scenario. That's the setting. You find someone dead out on the side of the road or something. We don't know who did it. What's going to happen is the elders of the area from different towns are supposed to come out, and they're supposed to measure to the towns to figure out where the dead body is in relation to towns. The closest town then has the responsibility to make atonement for the innocent blood that was shed, right? And so part of what they're saying here is, number one, innocent blood is a big deal in our land. And it needs to be covered, even if we can't find on this side of things, the person who needs to be held accountable, it still needs to be dealt with and covered because it's a serious thing that happened. We can't let this pollute the land. Because again, this is God's land for his people, right? Um, so they have to figure that out. They have to deal with it. So they take a heifer. They, they're going to kill the heifer there. Um, why? Um, well, they, uh, one thing is, look at verse 6. And all the elders of that city uh, nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord. So the first thing is what? They're sa what they're saying is, 
on pain of our own death, we are saying we're not skirting justice here. We didn't kill him, and we're not hiding the perpetrator because we're giving them a favor. We're taking this very seriously. If we're doing either of those things, we deserve to have our necks broken. That's one thing they're saying, I think. The second thing is, verse 8, Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people, Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you, so you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So again, we have this idea of justice. So they're testifying they didn't do it. They're trying to purge the guilt here. So in Israel, you're not going to have just uh, files in the police station that just are unsolved murders, right? That stay open with no attempt to at least say, we take this seriously with a public, community-wide, death is a big deal, right? God's justice is a big deal. Even if we can't find them, we're saying, God, you track them down. God, you bring justice here. And would you purge the guilt that we as the community people of God deserve by having this even happen in our midst because you're a holy God, right? Um, and so I think, I think that's what they're saying when they do that. Okay, any thoughts or questions on that? And we'll wrap up here and just pick up next time. Okay, so what I would say takeaways are um, you see specific applications of justice and they, these people, they gotta know what it's gonna look like to live in the land. They're going into the land, Right? Um, one application is we have to know what it looks like to live as God's kingdom of priests spread abroad, not in one particular nation state, but as the church, as, as, you know, embassies of the kingdom of Christ. And we have to follow the law of Christ in the new covenant. We need to obey what he commands. We need to take that seriously. Um, other applications are the seriousness of innocent blood being shed, right? And we can apply that to all sorts of things that we kind of gave some examples of earlier. Uh, and then I would say just in general, the importance of justice for a functioning society right? There are specific applications to Israel as the people of God that may not always directly transfer to nation states today, but the concept of justice is still key. If it, when people are organized into society, there has to be due process. There has to be justice, a sense of seeking rightness, which I think ultimately ends up being an apologetic for Christianity because it pushes you back to say, well, where are we going to find our standards for these things, right? And we, we got to start at least with some semblance of God. I, I don't see how you arrive at any other standard of justice. Because if it just becomes like, well, that's not right. Well, who died and made you king? What if they thought it was right? You, you're never going to find a bottom level if you don't have something outside the system that has authority and rightness and holiness as your ground level. You're always going to be building on sand with like no mantle below it. You're just going to keep digging and digging and digging. Um, so I think we just have to, to recognize those things. All right, well, let's pray. And then we'll, Lord willing, pick up back here next week. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Um, we do pray that we would be a people marked, um, especially with, with just within our own lives and within the church as uh, people who care about what is just and right. Um, by, as a people who have received mercy from you and so want to call others to receive your mercy, to repent um, so that you would relent of your judgment that would hang over them, but also to, to warn them that judgment does hang over them and that uh, your righteousness and holiness requires punishment. Um, and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came and bore the curse so that we would not have to bear the curse. Um, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.